listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. It's one of the greatest privileges of the Christian life to gather together to worship the Lord. And so let's continue to worship the Lord as we pray. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do come into your presence today with great, great joy. How can we not lift up our hearts and our minds to you right now, right here? We have sung it. We have heard it read to us. Christ is victorious. He is the victor. All his enemies lay defeated. He has entered into combat with Satan, sin, and death, and he has won. Not one of them, not all of them could hold him down, for he rose victorious over the dead. And so we say, what of Satan? We rejoice this morning. His head has been crushed. What of sin? We say Christ has been justified. What of death? It has been swallowed up by life. Even more, we celebrate because Christ is victorious over us. We were hell-bent on destruction. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. We were impure and polluted. We were hard and calloused. We were your enemy. But we rejoice this morning because Jesus has conquered us. In love, he has purchased our souls. With his mercy, he has gathered us in. According to his great grace, he has blotted out our sins. He has even reconciled our hostile minds. So we rejoice this morning because Christ has conquered us. We have tasted the victory in our own hearts, in our own minds. And so we come into your presence this morning, Father, and we ask, would you be pleased to show us more of your Son? We want to know more of the riches of his great victory. We want to know more of what it means for him to have conquered Satan, sin, and death. We confess that our understanding of these great realities is is too shallow, and so we pray, would would you add to our understanding? Would you grow our knowledge of this great gospel? We pray this morning, would you fill us afresh with his gifts and his graces? Would you make us all the more dependent upon Jesus? Would we all say to this day, oh, we cannot live without Christ? We ask that you would cause us to seek his face always. Even more, we pray that you would make us bold to proclaim his glorious grace to all. And we ask further this morning, oh Father, would you be pleased to apply the great victory of your son to more men and women and children? 
Father, we look at our family members, we look at our neighbors, we look at our very children, and we pray, we plead with you. Would they too know the great victory of Jesus? And would they have a a share in it, being free from sin and death, able to serve you, able to see the glory of Jesus? Oh, would you be pleased to save even in this day? And so we come to you, Father, with all of our praises, with all of our prayers, and we offer them up to you in the great and glorious name of Jesus, the one who came, the one who suffered, the one who conquered. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, would you take out your Bibles this morning on this Easter Sunday? We're going to be in John chapter 11 together. John chapter 11. Our sermon is going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 44. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, hear the word of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Martha and her sister Martha, village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest in sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face unwrapped, wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Oh, Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. We need your word right now, right here. Amen. So today is Easter, obviously, and this Easter morning, I want to focus our attention on the most significant theme of the gospel, that of the love of God. And so when you go to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot look at it, you cannot understand it without stumbling over, without tripping over the love of God. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ just bursts at the seams with the love of God. As you you look at the gospel, as you look at the historical events therein, the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, we see the love of God revealed in concrete and tangible form. And so it is with the love of God before us, this great theme, I want to ask a set of questions. What does, it, what does it mean to be loved by God? What does it mean to be loved by God? Or to ask this question in an even more practical way, what does it look like to experience the love of God? And then we can ask this in a really personal way. Have you tasted the love of God? Have you tasted the love of God? Well, John chapter 11 is the perfect place to turn on this Easter morning because not only is the matter of resurrection evident in John chapter 11, Jesus talks about resurrection, and then he goes and he he goes to this dead man and he raises him from the dead. 
Not only does, we, does he talk about resurrection, but we, but we find this matter of love evident in the text. Love is apparent. In fact, you can't work through John chapter 11 without encountering this theme of love. And so the chapter begins with the news that Lazarus is ill. And this news report comes to Jesus in very specific language. You find it in verse 3. The messenger says to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And just a couple verses later, if you move from verse 3 down to verse 5, we encounter the same word again. Jesus does not only love Lazarus, but he loves Lazarus' family, Martha and Mary, as well. And so this love that is apparent in verse 3 and verse 5 is not a a one-way street of love. Jesus loves this family in Bethany, and this family in Bethany loves the Lord Jesus. So in verse 2, Mary is described as the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. As we think about those actions, those actions reveal the heart of someone who deeply and profoundly loved Jesus. Even more, as we think about this whole story that we just read together, this whole story is prompted by love. When Lazarus is ill, his family does what? The first thing that they do is they, is they call out for Jesus. And they do this because they, they love him. And for good measure, this theme of love is sprinkled in the text a few more times. If you go down to verse 11, Jesus explains what he's going to do with his disciples. And he says this, Our friend, or it could be translated differently, our beloved has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then in verse 36, Jesus sees the mourners, and the mourners see him, and they they respond as they watch Jesus weep. They say, see how he loved him. And so what's the takeaway here? Well, the text of Scripture wants us to know as readers, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus loves this family in Bethany. He loves Martha. He loves Mary. He loves Lazarus. These people were not casual acquaintances. They were not just another another face in the crowd who needed Jesus' ministry. These people were dear to Jesus, especially dear. Jesus loved them. And brothers and sisters, we have to take this language so seriously. We have to remember who we're dealing with. Who is this character we meet in John chapter 11? It is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus' love is perfect. It's unstained by sin. It isn't contaminated with with selfishness or rivalry. It can't be worn down or extinguished. It can't be diverted or perverted or corrupted. Jesus' love is pure and true and righteous and good. This is the love of the Son of God revealed. And so the text says, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. But just as soon as this matter of love is established before us, we are confused and we are disturbed by Jesus. And so we can pick the story back up. The sisters of Lazarus send to Jesus urgent news. The messenger says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, this message was not a simple notification. Hey, Jesus, we just want you to know that Lazarus is ill. We are here in Bethany. You are out there doing ministry Here's just a notification, a Facebook post, Jesus is ill. No, there's an implied message in this call. Lord, he whom you love is ill. What the messenger is saying, what these these sisters are saying to Jesus, Jesus, would would you please come quickly to Bethany? We need you. Our brother, he is not doing well. We need your ministry right here, right now. So what will Jesus do? As we think about the story, we've got two facts established First fact, Jesus loves this family. 
Second fact, this family really needs Jesus, really. And so in light of these two facts, the answer seems obvious. What's Jesus going to do? He's going he's to go, and he's going to meet their needs. And this is a good answer to give because we've been conditioned to give this answer. We know the gospel stories well. In the gospel stories, we see that Jesus is always eager. He's always ready to meet the people's needs. We see it time and time again. Someone comes to Jesus in need, and and Jesus is busy doing something or traveling somewhere. And what does he do? Well, he stops, and he listens, and then he heals. He, He helps. He brings salvation. And so from our knowledge of Jesus, as we study him in the Gospels, we're wired to give this answer. Well, what will Jesus do? Well, he's going to drop what he's doing here. He's going to go, and he's going to heal Lazarus. Even more, we're conditioned by our own impulses. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You hear your child crying off in the distance, and you can tell it's your child's cry, and so what do you do? Well, you, you stop what you're doing, even if it's really important. You, you set it down, and you quickly go to your child, and you help him or her. And so we know, what will Jesus do? We expect him to immediately drop what he's doing, even if it's really important, and go and help Lazarus because he loves him. But as we look into the text, Jesus doesn't do this. Jesus defies our expectations of him. He doesn't drop what he is doing, and he doesn't go to Lazarus, and he doesn't heal him. So what we need to do is turn our attention to Jesus, and we have to consider what he says and what he does. Because both what he says and what he does is very strange and very confusing. So we can start with the words of Jesus. The the news of Lazarus' illness comes to Jesus, the messenger comes, and and Jesus speaks right away. We we find his speech recorded in verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We can just take those words at face value, imagining those around Jesus listening to that. The messenger has come, the disciples are gathered around Jesus, and what does it sound like? It sounds like good news. The men present would have been thinking something like this. Great news, Jesus. This illness does not lead to death. Our friend Lazarus is ill, so ill that a messenger has come to us, but he's not going to die. Glorious. But then we keep listening to Jesus, and the text keeps moving on. Two days later, Jesus speaks again. Verse 7, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. We ask, well, why does Jesus want to go to Judea again? Jesus speaks again in verse 11. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And at this point, the disciples of Jesus have to be both concerned and confused. They're concerned. Why? Because Jesus wants to go to Judea. And at this point, there are a lot of enemies living in Judea in the city of Bethany and all around. There are a lot of folks who do not like Jesus and want to kill Jesus. And even more, these men are confused. Jesus, why do we need to make this trip? Why take this risk? Why risk your life? You said Lazarus is going to recover. This illness does not lead to death. Even more, you told us that he is is sleeping. Why take the risk? And so Jesus speaks again. And when Jesus speaks again, these men must have only been plunged deeper into their confusion. Verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Just think about the disciples. Their minds, 
the questions running through them. They must have been going through their minds at 100 miles an hour. Dead. Jesus, you said dead. Didn't you say that this illness doesn't lead to death? Dead. Jesus, I thought you just said Lazarus was sleeping. Glad. You just told us Lazarus is is dead. Glad we love Lazarus. He is our friend. He is your friend, Jesus. How can you say that? So we look at Jesus' words, we hear them, we take them in, and they are confusing. So confusing. But it only gets more confusing when we take a close look at what Jesus does in the midst of all of these things that he just said. So look at verse 5 and verse 6. Jesus' actions are revealed in the midst of his words. The text says this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Just let those words sink in. They're confounding. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, because he loved him, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus' love for this family prompts the most confusing and bizarre behavior. And we need to feel the weight of what Jesus does here in verse 5 and verse 6. Because Jesus loved Lazarus, Jesus let Lazarus die. That doesn't make sense to us. Jesus could have stepped in. He could have intervened. He could have prevented Lazarus' untimely death. He could have stepped in there and Lazarus would have never had to undergo the ravages of death. Jesus just let Lazarus experience death. Even more, because Jesus loved Martha and Mary, he plunged these two women into darkness, pain, and grief. That doesn't make sense. Jesus could have hurried there. Jesus could have prayed. Jesus could have come, and these two women would have never had to shed one single tear over their brother. But Jesus waited and let all of that happen. And as we think about it, there is no way to sidestep the confusing words and actions of the Lord Jesus. There isn't any way to massage the text to get a different answer out of it. The gospel story has been set up and it has been set up deliberately. The story wants us to to wrestle and struggle with the love of Jesus. And we don't have to wrestle alone this morning because we can just go into the story and we find all sorts of characters wrestling with love of Jesus and we just have to follow along. So back to the story. Jesus arrives in Bethany and when he arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. And so Jesus first meets Martha. She comes to him when she hears that Jesus is coming her way. And when she meets Jesus, she bears her heart pouring out grief and sorrow to him. She says in verses 21 and 22, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And then Martha go gets her sister, Mary, and Mary comes to Jesus, and she bears her heart to Jesus as well, and she says something very similar. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And finally, Jesus comes into contact with a group of Jews who had come to mourn with the two sisters. And they're watching all of this unfold, and they speak to, verse 37, 
Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man, this man from dying? And so we take in all of this language, these characters grappling with Jesus, and what are we to make of this? Well, surely all of these statements, Martha, Mary, the Jews, all of these statements have faith in them. All of these people believed in Jesus' power. They had witnessed the great signs that he had performed. They all believed that if Jesus had been there in Bethany, that Lazarus would not have died. The wrestle here in John chapter 11 is not with Jesus' power, the extent of it. Rather, the wrestle here is with the nature of Jesus' love. They're confused by Jesus' love. They don't understand Jesus' love. And they're all asking, why, Jesus, didn't you take action for our sake? We know that you could have solved this whole problem for us, but you didn't. Why, Jesus? And as we listen to these characters deal with Jesus, as we look at Martha and Mary and these Jews, the text brings us into this raw and uncomfortable place. And maybe it's a place where you're living in this moment right here, right now. You can identify with Martha and Mary. You know about Jesus. You have opened the book and you have read about Jesus. You have seen his power and what he can do for men and women. You've heard his, his gospel. And yet you're stuck in your situation. You're stuck with the illness. You're stuck with the darkness. You're stuck with the trouble. It doesn't leave no matter what you do. You know that Jesus has the power, but it's not fixed. And so you're stuck. You're confused. And you're grappling with the heart of Jesus. And what Martha and Mary say to Jesus make complete sense to you. You say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so we ask both as readers of this text and as we live our lives, is there a way out of this fog? Is there a way out of this confusion? How can we make sense of Jesus, his love? Well, there are answers for us, and there are answers for us if we stick our noses right into the Bible. And so we need to go back and we need to rehash all that we have gone through, and by rehashing it, we might see something that we didn't see before. So let's ask, well, what did Jesus do? Verses five and six. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What did Jesus say? Verse four, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Go down to verse 14. Jesus says again, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So we have all of these puzzle pieces. We have the actions of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and we need to start to assemble them together, and I want to help you with this. Jesus loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, and because he loves these three, what does he do? He delays in coming to them. And we ask, why would Jesus delay What's the purpose? Jesus gives us an answer. He says, it is for the glory of God. And he gets even more specific as he explains the glory of God. He says, so that, here's the purpose, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus delays because he loves them so that they might see glory. And what does this have to do with 
these people we meet in the story with Martha and Mary and Lazarus and the Jews and the disciples and us. Jesus answers, he says, for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. So we've got these puzzle pieces and we're trying to assemble them. Can you start to see the picture? Can you start to see the rationale of Jesus? And we can take these puzzle pieces and we can try to assemble them together again with different words and this might be helpful. And so Jesus truly loves these people. Because he truly loves these people, he wants these people to have the ultimate good. And what is the ultimate good here? Well, the ultimate good is not a comfortable life. The ultimate good is not a healing in the nick of time. The ultimate good is not freedom from tears or grief. Rather, the ultimate good, according to the Lord Jesus, is the revelation, or we could say the the unveiling of his glory. Jesus understood what these people ultimately needed was to see him for who he truly was, that they might see him as the one sent from God, the glorious son of God. You see what he is doing. Jesus is working for the good of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, pushing them from something that's okay to something that's ultimately valuable. And as we think about it, this is something that Jesus does again and again in the Gospel of John. And if we go and compare John 11 to a few other stories in the Gospel of John, we can see what Jesus is doing. And so, for example, do you remember the time when Jesus met that woman by the well in Samaria? Remember that scene. The woman was going to the well. Why? Because she wanted a drink of water. She needed water. But what did Jesus do? Well, in this circumstance, he worked for her good. And so what did he say to her? He said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. You see what Jesus is doing? He is working for this woman's good. She is coming for a drink of water, and he is pushing her towards water that will quench her thirst forever. Or do you remember the crowd that Jesus fed in the Gospel of John? It's a miraculous scene, five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus prays, and it's multiplied, and everyone is fed and satisfied. Well, what happens the next day? Well, the food that Jesus fed the crowd with wore off. Food only lasts for so long, and they're hungry again. And so what do they do? They, they seek Jesus, and they find him, and they're looking for what? They're looking for more bread, more fish. What does Jesus do? Well, he pushes on them. He says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So you see what Jesus is doing here. He he pushes on the woman, and he is pushing her past this matter of water. He is pushing on the crowds, and he's pushing them on past this matter of bread. And each and every time, what is Jesus doing? He is bringing them to himself. Jesus is an audacious preacher. In every case, Jesus preaches himself. He says, what you need is right here. It's it's me. And as we go back to John chapter 11, this is exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples and with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Jesus has delayed so that he might lead these people, so he might push these people towards something better, towards something greater, towards something that will ultimately satisfy them. So we need to go back into our text and see how Jesus does this. And so we need to look again at Jesus, and we need to pay attention to both what he says and what he does. 
So we go back to the story, and Martha has met Jesus. She has bared her heart to the Lord. She's grieving before him. She is speaking to him. And Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And so Martha receives this word of comfort, and she says to Jesus in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so we see here that Martha has good theology. She has read the scriptures that the Lord is coming and he's going to swallow up death on the last day and God's people will be rescued. But here's Jesus and he isn't content with that answer. And so what does Jesus do? He begins to push because he wants her to see more. In fact, he really wants her to see him for who he truly is. So what does Jesus say? No, we're not talking about the doctrine of the resurrection on the last day. I am talking about this, verse 25, verse 26. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let those words sink in. Those are breathtaking words. According to Jesus, the resurrection is not some far-off, far-away reality. It's not just a, a doctrine on a page of a dusty book that we pull off our shelves and think about every once in a while. It's not the grace of God that's just on the distant horizon. No, according to Jesus, he himself is the resurrection and the life. Israel's great hope is bound up in his person, walking and breathing right in front of them. What Jesus is saying is so gracious and good. He is saying, Martha, all that you need, all that you long for is found right here in me. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, as we think about Jesus' words... We have to say that's a very odd way to construe your identity. I am the resurrection and the life. And so as readers, we, we say, well, what does that actually mean to be the resurrection and the life? Can you, can you help me here? So we need to watch what Jesus does. Because Jesus illustrates, he reveals what it means for him to be the resurrection and the life. And so Mary comes to Jesus. And she mimics her sister in many ways. She bears her heart to the Lord. She grieves. She's confused. She speaks to him. And then Jesus responds, and we see his emotions come out. Verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And we need to think hard about these words that reveal Jesus, because Jesus isn't joining in with the mourners. He's not one of those hopelessly wailing and mourning along. He's not like that. Rather, it's better to see Jesus in the midst of these descriptions it's better to see his emotions with this violent component to it. In the presence of death and all the, all the grief surrounding him, what happens to him? I think a better translation is this. He becomes hot with indignation and anger. And he's not angry with Martha. He's not angry with Mary. He's not angry with the crowds. What is he angry about? Well, just think, what did Jesus just say? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And what stands before him? Oh, there is Lazarus. He is dead. He sees his great enemy, death itself, and what death has done to his dear friends. And so he is angry, and tears roll down his cheeks. And so the question is, well, what will Jesus do about it? Verse 39, Jesus speaks. He says, take away the stone. But Jesus' command is met with resistance. They're not eager to move the stone. Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been, do been dead four days. You don't want to do that, Jesus. He's rotting. 
Jesus pushes here, and he's not going to be stopped. For this was the reason he waited and delayed. Jesus speaks again. Verse 40, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is going to unveil the glory of God here. And then we pay attention and we see the glory of God revealed. We see what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. The text records, verses 43 and 44. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You want to know what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life? We see it right here. We behold the Christ in his glory. He speaks and by the power of his voice and by the power of his voice alone, the dead arise. We just get a small picture of what Jesus will do someday when he comes back in the fullness of his glory. He will speak once again and all the dead will rise. And so do you see it? Do you see the glory of the Son of God? This is, what Mar- this is what Jesus wanted Martha and Mary and Lazarus and all his disciples to see. He wanted them to see that he himself is resurrection and life. That he himself is the source of all life, all new creation. And we see here, this is how Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He loved them by delaying. He loved Lazarus by letting him die. He loved these two sisters by letting them grieve so that he could come and both by word and deed, reveal himself in their midst. He loved them by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he loved them by saying, Lazarus, come out. And so there's the story of John chapter 11. So now we can go back to the questions that we started with. We asked, well, what does it mean for God to love you? We asked, what does it look like to experience the love of God. And then we ask, have you tasted, have I tasted the love of God? And as we think about John chapter 11 and has been working on our hearts and our minds, what we have to do is we have to throw away all uh, all these superficial answers. We can't measure God's love with health or wealth. It just doesn't work. We can't measure God's love with ease. We can't assess the love of God, how much we've experienced by how much we have cried or haven't cried in our lives. That just doesn't work according to Jesus. So we need to think about these questions. What does it mean for God to love you? What does it mean for God to love you? Well, here's the answer. It means for God to reveal the glory of his son to you. Your greatest need is to see Jesus Christ revealed in his resplendent glory as the son of God. And just think about what God has been doing this morning in our midst. We have been experiencing the love of God, haven't we? We have all gathered together in this room. We have a book opened up in front of us. I am preaching from it, and the Spirit is moving, opening our hearts and our minds to see the great glory of Jesus. And we see Jesus' glory in his words and in his deeds. What does it mean for God to love you? It means for him to open your eyes to see the glory of of Jesus Christ. We can ask our second question. Well, what does it look like to experience the love of God? What does it look like to experience the love of God? Well, it looks like seeing. We can say really seeing Jesus for who he truly is. 
That's what it looks like to experience the love of God. It looks like the light of Jesus' words breaking into our dark souls when he speaks, I am the resurrection and the life. It is the dazzling power of Jesus' words overcoming our fears and our doubts when he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It is the great power of Jesus' words breaking into our our dead hearts and our dead minds, speaking life where there was no life. It looks like Jesus crying out, Lazarus, come out. What does it look like to experience the love of God right here, right now? It looks like seeing, really seeing Jesus for who he is, hearing the words, I am the resurrection and the life, and rejoicing over it. And we can ask our last question. Have you tasted the love of God? Have you tasted this love of God? And this is where all that we have studied, all that we have seen, all that we have applied must be taken to our hearts. Have you seen, have you really seen Jesus for who he truly is? Jesus asked Martha in verse 26, after he proclaimed his identity to her, revealing himself, do you believe this? The Lord Jesus makes us stand this very day because he has revealed himself to us in this congregation, and he asks, do you believe this? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we believe it. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the one sent from you. We believe that he is the resurrection and the life. We believe that whoever believes in him will live. And so we praise you and we thank you for revealing the glorious Son of God to us. We praise your name now. Amen.